It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Barry Ross, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode discusses cryptocurrency. Our guest, Ron Shevlin, Director of Research at Cornerstone Advisors, Senior Contributor at Forbes, and Published Author. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Barry. So let's hit it. Going to ask uh, a lot of silly questions, maybe get a, an eye roll from you uh, a couple of times. But how would you describe cryptocurrency to someone like me who has no idea what the technology is? Uh, sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is if you've got no idea what it is, stay away from it. <laughs> Do yourself a favor and don't jump into the pool. Uh, but if you'd want a more sort of formal definition, look, it, it's 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 nothing magic. It's currency with two caveats. One is there's no physical form to it. So unlike the normal or the everyday currency we're used to using, there are no dollar bills. There are no pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters. Everything is just uh, based in software. It's technolo- technology-based uh, currency. But the other important aspect to it is it's currency that is not issued by a government or nation or state. Um, and so to some to some extent, do you remember the, you know, the maybe you had a local store that had, you know, uh, mega bucks days and things? I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what it is. It's made up currency. But when we all accept it as as form of payment, it carries some weight, but fundamentally, that's what cryptocurrency is. It's it's, it's simply technology-based money, um, and that's why we're seeing an explosion of it. It's not just Bitcoin, but there's hundreds, maybe even thousands at this point or more types of cryptocurrencies out there that uh, people are investing, trading, and doing who knows what with. And so I love that definition. I appreciate it, especially the parallel to megabucks. Uh, and so we want to get more into the details behind uh, what you just said in terms of a definition. But in my world, in the enterprise world, you know, we talk about solutions uh, that are defined as a combination of hardware, software, and services that solves a, a customer's specific problem. You know, we say pain points, but from your perspective, what are the components of a crypto network, any crypto network, and what problems does the cryptocurrency solve for an end user? Yeah, the probably the simplest way to describe this, Barry, is that the cryptocurrency takes out intermediaries or middlemen that exist with other forms of currency. Uh, and that's a specific, specifically we're talking about payments. Because to a certain extent, there are people who do nothing with cryptocurrency except invest in it, betting on the value of it. Uh, and that's sort of like just, you know, betting on horse racing. You know, who's going to win? And uh, you, you take your shot. And if you win, you win some money. And if you don't, the same thing with cryptocurrency. But there is a practical aspect to it from a payments perspective. And if you think about making inter um, you know, cross, cross-border currency transactions. Uh, there are things that have to be done in terms of trans 
translating or transferring money from one type of currency into another. And cryptocurrency helps uh, re eliminate that, uh, as well as get around or get through some regulatory issues that may persist in that. Um, for even just domestic transactions, though, you know, you think about it, if you are going into a store and you swipe your debit or credit card, I'm not sure the average consumer really understands how many different entities that transaction passes through. Now, obviously, the merchant uh, is taking the, the card transaction, which goes then goes through a, uh, a, a party that they uh, can contract with. Then it goes uh, to the networks. Then it goes back to another processor. And then it goes into the uh, you know, hits the hits the banks underlying where the account is being held. So, to a certain extent, cryptocurrency gets away from all of those intermediaries in a payment transaction uh, because fundamentally, it's it's relying on a technology called blockchain, which is really just a database management program, but with some constructs that that make it uh, what's called immutable. Um, and so that, you know, not anybody can just, you know, play around with it. Now, there are some negatives to that. But that's basically the problem or, or you know, some of the problems that are solved by cryptocurrency. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still not there yet in terms of perfecting this. But, you know, that's that's the promise. So let's talk a little about a little bit about. FinTech. We had a segment uh, a while ago um, with another uh, person. And so I, the question I have is, you know, what is FinTech and how does cryptocurrency fit in? So crypto, uh, FinTech is, is just a, a really broad term that's being used. It really applies to anything related to technology in the world of financial services. Now, when the term first really became popular a few years ago, it was really associated with the startups who were providing uh, banking and investing services directly to consumers. But that evolved to firms that are providing services to, to banks and to other financial institutions. Uh, and then the, the, the old guard, the legacy technology vendors in the space, the Fiserv's and FIS's and Jack Henry's of the world, not that many consumers would be familiar with those, but they're the companies that are actually providing the software that most banks and credit unions actually run. They said, well, yeah, you know, we're technology providers in the, fin in the financial services world, so I guess we're fintech too. And so cryptocurrency is technology that's related to financial services, so therefore it fits under the fintech umbrella. But I would tell you that I think when people use the term fintech, they're probably not referring to cryptocurrency, uh, but they're referring to most of the startups in the space that are providing banking and other financial services related services. Yeah, that that, that definitely, that, that helps me personally, because I tend to lump everything under fintech. And so, and so this, this helps me with the next question, because when I think about cryptocurrency, you know, I, I automatically think about, you know, the banking industry. But, you know, in your opinion, what other industries does cryptocurrency impact or will impact in the future? Any industry that accepts payments is going to be impacted. Mm. Any in industry that's involved with investing is going to be impact. But it's the payments aspect of it that has the 
the the the, the potential for the greatest impact because we're talking about the transference of money mm. uh, from one party to another. Uh, that today um, can be quite complex. And as I said, there are a lot of intermediaries in, in those transactions. And so it's you cut out the intermediaries, you get a more faster and direct response and a less expensive way to transact because there are no intermediaries. And so, you know, especially for companies and industries, as I alluded to before, that have a lot of cross-border payments, I mean, that is mm-hmm. really right. For, uh, for for cryptocurrency. Uh, and it's important to understand too, Barry, that, you know, we're not only talking about Bitcoin or Ethereum here. You know, mm. not only are there hundreds, but it's, you know, even JP Morgan Chase has a thing called JP Morgan or JP Coin. Um, and they, they have their own cryptocurrency because they do so many cross-border payments that it's actually beneficial to them to create a cryptocurrency that enables them to move money across countries uh, without having to deal with all the, the typical um, uh, exchange currency that they have to do. Walmart came out with a or announced it was going to create a cryptocurrency wow. a few years ago. You know, and that's not a, a play to get people to invest in their in Walmart coin. It's a way to improve their supply chain the movement of money between the players in their ecosystem and their supply chain. So, um, there, you know, th- this is going to impact a lot of different industries, but in, in some ways that really won't necessarily be very um, transparent or bad word to use, won't be very visible to a mm. lot of consumers because a lot of it will be kind of back-end kind of stuff. And, and so I, I think we just kind of touched on, or rather you touched on some of the benefits right, of crypto. But, you know, when I pick up the paper or like, you know, watch TV, you know, no channels mentioned, you know, there seems to be a lot of press around the cons of cryptocurrency. Like, like you were saying, perhaps maybe, you know, value and pricing volatility or potential for security uh, breaches, you know, maybe even, you know, criminal uses. Do you think that these potential negatives outweigh the positives of crypto, like what like you were talking about before, maybe low transaction costs or universal access? So, Barry, I don't want to get too philosophical on you here, <laughs> right. but with every technology development we've seen in the last hundred years, there's always pluses and there's always minuses. And, you know, what gets me are the rose-colored optimists who never want to admit this the downside. I mean, look, there's even, you know, the atom bomb was not uh, invented to, to blow up things. And, you know, there were other right. benefits to that. You know, 15 years ago, I remember when social media was becoming popular, it was going to democratize the world <laughs> and everybody was going to have a voice and a share. And 15 years later, Twitter and Facebook are, are actually uh, manipulating political um, uh, campaigns and and muting certain people. So there's always a downside to it, um, but there's always pluses, and you know the the benefit will there'll always be the downside. The other thing that you that people have to really understand is uh, there are a lot of bad actors in the world, and for better or worse, they tend sometimes are, are really smart people, and it's tough to keep up with the fraudulent behavior of a lot of these smart people. So there will be downsides. 
but will the but should we throw it away or stop the the development and use of it because there are downsides? No, you you just continue to to manage the best you can. Uh, but the positives are 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 going to be you know very important and that will reap a lot of benefits from it. And I'm not talking just about sort of the upsides of you know a generation who thinks and. Um, that and I'm not referring to any of the people involved in this in this uh, podcast, Barry. But if you all think that you know we're just going to make a few investments here in Bitcoin and Ethereum and retire at the age 30, we might want to rethink that a little bit. Um, and I, so the the benefits are going to far outweigh the, the the downsides of this. Yeah, and so I appreciate the reality check. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, there's always a pros and con to you know, launching a new technology, maintaining a new technology, both from a consumer and enterprise side. You know, I, you know, I, I come from a product background, so I get it. And maybe I was trying to lead the witness a little bit. Uh, and, and so I read your recent article, uh, which I loved, uh, called Americans Shadow Financial Lives, Why Banks Don't Know Jack or Jill. And so, you know, it, it resonated with me because I, I used to work at a regional bank in D.C., you know, back in the early 2000s when I was a, a lot younger, um, you know, it, it wasn't a small bank. It had a deposit base of about $150 million. So, you know, it was, you know, fairly large. And as a branch manager, I knew all kinds, all kinds of customer financial data, like literally at my fingertips. But, you know, according to your article, you know, American financial lives have become more complex, you know, way back, you know, compared to the 2000s, which I believe. But it's a twofer. So how so? How so has this complexity evolved? And, and, and why do you believe banks slash credit unions are missing the boat? Yeah, let's talk about the, the let's go back to the fintech discussion and, and what that has produced. Fintech is not just companies who are creating digital banks. And say, oh, you know, you, you're doing business with Bank of America today. Go leave them and come to our Bank of the Digital, you know, Bank of Digital. That's not what it is. There, there are companies like that, but the fintech explosion has seen the unbundling of not the bank, it's from the unbundling of the checking account or the bank account itself. So we had a bank account, we had a checking account in the old days, and what could we do with that? Well, the old days we could write a check against it. And that was pretty much it. And then they invented um, online banking. And so we could check our account balances and we could move some money. And then they invented some capabilities to do some budgeting. And then somewhere along the line, debit cards were introduced. And that was you know really beneficial too. But what the fintech explosion has done has it's increased the number of different providers who create tools to help you manage your money. So there are tools that do automated savings where they'll analyze your bank account, see the funds that go in and out and decide, you know what, Barry, you're not saving as much as you could. And so we're going to automatically move, take money out. Or there are tools that will automatically scan your, your bills and determine, you know, there's a fraudulent charge on here or look, this charge, you know, they're sticking it to you. Or we're going to analyze and say, did you know, Barry, that people like you are spending 15% less on their bills? Would you like to get more help? There, just this profusion, proliferation of tools. Now, the typical bank says, well, you know, my customers only have like one checking account. Yeah, but they're using 10 different tools to help them manage their money. Even on the investing side, it's similar. People 
young consumers have not given up their accounts at Merrill Lynch or whatever, or Fidelity or, uh, uh, you know, wherever they have their accounts. But now they have another account with, let's say, Robinhood, where they do some speculative trading. And they have an account with Coinbase where they're doing investing in uh, cryptocurrency. And they may even have a, an account with a firm called Investor without any of the vowels that does fantasy finance. It's like playing fantasy football, but with finance. So the number of providers or tools that the typical, and this, this is really more concentrated with millennials and, and Gen Zers for sure, consumers between the ages of 21 and 40 or so, but it's not unusual for a millennial or Gen Z couple to have 40 to 55, 40 to 50 different providers or accounts that they wow. are using to manage their money. And banks are sitting there thinking, oh, you know, move all your accounts to us. It's like people are going, you know, you're crazy and would never do that. So that's why I say there's this, you know, shadow financial life that banks just don't know that their consumers, their customers are, are using because our financial lives, uh, and this is the real paradox, is in an attempt to get more convenience and value out of it, our financial lives have become so much more complex because we're doing business with so many different fintech and, and banks and, and, and different firms. I am gobsmacked. That That is a huge number, 40 or 50 accounts. I, I mean, because I, I have to go back. I know I'm riffing a little bit. I mean, if the average... Uh, customer at this bank that I worked at, if they had three or four accounts, that was a lot, right? And we did this analysis for them, you know, where they should spend their money, where they should invest their money. And that was trying to keep them, you know, in the deposit base. So when you say, you know, the millennials or Gen Zers actually have, you know, four or five, six times the amount of, you know, different financial, I guess, institutions or services that do all this analysis, and maybe it's based in, that's incredible. That's, uh, that, that is really... It's not yeah, just ahead, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. It's it's not just no, accounts. It's tools, it's it's providers, it's different things. Things that the bank could have offered itself if if it were developing all these products. But what we're probably evolved to is where large banks in particular, and even some mid-sized banks, will look to be provide more of a platform. Think of like Amazon, where you go to do all your shopping. So the, the banks are looking to migrate to a place where you know, the, all of these can be better integrated in and coordinated. But uh, there are some threats out there. There are companies like Square and, and SoFi that are doing great lending clubs. Another one that's evolved past their, their original start um, that are creating net, big networks in and of themselves of both customers and merchants and uh, will be aggregating these tools. So it's going to be a, a competitive space over the next few years. So, so let me, uh, for my next question, let me ask you. Uh, uh, it's almost a lob, right? Because we've talked a lot about like, you know, cryptocurrency and you mentioned Bitcoin and then, you know, blockchain kind of makes my head explode. But what is the difference between, you know, those three concepts, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and blockchain? Is, there, is that an easy explanation or is this like randos? Uh, you know, they can't be tied together. Oh, well, they, they are tied together. Uh, Bitcoin is a form of cryptocurrency. Blockchain is a technology approach that enables cryptocurrency to be created, used, and, and deployed. Um, so that's kind of the way to think about it. Ethereum is another form of cryptocurrency. 
That's important because it's enabling a lot of new approaches, what's often called. So here's another concept for you that people should know about is this idea of Web3. You know, Web1 was the static web. Web2 was the e-commerce web. And Web3 is the cryptocurrency, Ethereum-based web with smart contracts that enforce things, you know, that uh, don't have to, you know, it's, it's really the creation of that smart contract idea where, you know, if, if you buy a home from me, I don't have to wait every month to, to get my money that, for you to send it. There's a smart contract that enforces the payment of that. Think about it almost as automated payments, but it's, mm. you know, it's contractually based. Uh, and Ethereum is the cryptocurrency of choice that, that enables that. So these are, are not rando types of concepts. They're, they're very, you know, closely related. Uh, and in some pieces, you know, some some respects, you know, one is a is an example of another. Right. I feel the uh, the workings, the ideation of our next podcast with smart contracts. That's the first I've heard of that. So let's put a pin on that one. And we have to have a, have you come back if that's OK. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like, you know, do you think, you know, is institutional adoption of the cryptocurrency ecosystem inevitable? Uh, it depends what you mean by adoption of it. Uh, I just published, uh, you mentioned earlier, thank you for the plug, that I'm a Forbes contributor, <laughs> and I, I write a blog there called The Fintech Snark Tank. And uh, for the past few years, I've been publishing an, a, uh, an article called uh, you know, The Top Five Trends for the Coming Year. And one of my top trends for 2022 is what I am calling very ugly-ish, the cryptoification of banks. And what I mean by that is, look, I've done some consumer research over the past year, and about 15 to 20% of U.S. adults now say that they hold some form of cryptocurrency, most, most of them probably in Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, but many of them, Barry, and in fact, I think the number was about 60%, said that if their banks offered cryptocurrency investing services, they would buy cryptocurrency through their banks and not through one of these exchanges. And yeah, I think it's at the point, and I've talked to a lot of banks about that, and I got to tell you, bankers who are conservative by nature, and rightfully so, given you know their fiduciary responsibilities, have no shortage of reasons why banks should not be getting into cryptocurrency. The, the regulatory environment, the, the, the volatility, blah, 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 blah. You know, what if somebody invests cryptocurrency with us and, and it goes down? I'm like, yeah, but I can buy a stock from you that that right. goes down in value by 90%. The demand is there um, for crypto investing, crypto custodial services. Now, whether we're talking about whether or not banks will take deposits and then put that into cryptocurrency as a way of you know generating a, a higher return – that I don't think we're quite there yet. I know there are some banks that are are doing some things around that, but with you know very small percentages because there's just no way the regulators would would stomach any meaningful percentage of that. So I do think we're going to see. And by the way, I I, I on Twitter I, today when after I published this, I had a bunch of people say, "Ron, I think you're a little too soon on this one." Oh really? No, I I'm keeping to my guns here because uh, I've actually just finished a survey of financial services executives, and there's about fifteen to twenty percent that say they're going to get into it. 
Wow. Which is not a huge number in the scheme of things, because typically they'll say we're going to do something and then end up not doing it. But uh, there's a company called NIDIG that has been providing these services uh, to a number of banks and have uh, relationships and, and a partnership with the three big providers. So I think we're going to see stronger adoption, but that's really going to be the consumer side of the coin, Barry, not the institutional side, you know, not the money management investing side of the bank itself. So that's why I say, you know, when you ask about adoption, you've got to kind of look at this from a couple different angles. Well, I think that leads to, to the next question. I think you may have already answered it, but I mean, do you believe financial institutions are justified in their skepticism of crypto? I think it's a yes or no, or maybe, or I mean, what's your sense on that? Uh, well, I I like the fact that they're skeptical <laughs> because, you know, I'm, it's funny, Barry, I, I read a um, an academic piece of research a few years ago that identified and, and argued that there are a group of people called technology optimists who don't see mm. the negative side of, of technology development. And we were talking about that earlier with, you know, all the forms. And so, you know, I, I think it's smart to start from a strong perspective of, of skepticism versus a overly optimistic, rosy-colored view of the world. So if the banks were jumping into this willy-nilly, um, then I'd be more worried than I'd be worried than if they're starting from, from a point of skepticism. But they were skeptical about providing internet banking capabilities because wow. of security issues and all of that. They were That's skeptical right. about opening up checking, and they're still skeptical about opening up checking accounts because of fraudulent <laughs> behavior. And, and so they're, they're always warranted, they're, with, their skepticism is warranted, but it's just, it's just a matter that means it just extends the period of adoption out a little bit. Yeah, so, so before I move on, so you said something. So are you a tech optimist? No, I'm a tech realist. Uh, and it's funny <laughs> that you say that because uh, uh, my buddy Brett King, who's written a number of books in the banking space, has a new book out called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. Uh, and sure. it's not about politics. It's about how technology enables governments and, and people, and then you should get him on your on your podcast as well. And, and it's funny, I had a chance to interview him for his own podcast, Breaking Banks. Uh, we kind of flipped the, the, the tables on it. I was the interviewer and he was the interviewee. And I brought that up and I said, you know, my big issue, biggest issue with the book, Brett, is you're, you're a technology optimist. He goes, and you're a technology pessimist? I go, no, I'm a realist. Um, <laughs> so I'm not pessimistic at all about technology. I know I, I like that answer. I, I think I might uh, riff that from you, uh, realist. I got to remember that. Uh, I, I I think I tend to be more of an optimist, but then you know I just in my line of work, like you'll hear something about a security breach, and you just can't help but think of you know did we do the right thing? Uh, which leads me to my actually my next question because you know it, I have no idea what what this acronym stands for, but you know I think I do. But what is decentralized finance or DeFi? One, that's the first question. How does it fit into our existing banking system? Does it? So the, the, we go back to the, the talk before about the, the disintermediation of intermediaries. Okay. And to a certain extent, that's what decentralized finance is, is supposed to represent. The idea that we don't need all these intermediaries in payments and in finance where we can just you and I can just interact directly without having a bank 
or some other financial institution in between intermediary, intermediating that transaction. And that could be for a payment or a loan or, or whatever it might be. The problem I have with the term is that there are all these companies popping up claiming to be decentralized finance companies. And so what are they? They're intermediaries. They're just re-intermediating the intermediaries. And, and you know, this is where uh, I think some can, younger, younger folks just don't have the history is, look, you go back to mid-1990s. This is what the internet was supposed to do. It was supposed to disintermediate all the intermediaries. We need intermediaries. But what the term has kind of evolved to is this idea of cryptocurrency-based um, transactions. And mostly through Ethereum, not necessarily Bitcoin. Ethereum is kind of the, the cryptocurrency of choice in the DeFi world. Um, now, you, I alluded before to the term Web3. Look, everybody's kind of rebranding themselves these days. Facebook is now Meta. Uh, Square is now Block. And basically, DeFi is now Web3. So, <laughs> you know, we still see a lot of use of the term decentralized, you know, de you know, uh, the decentralized autonomous DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the fundamental core of this barrier is trust. And that's right. the reason we have the intermediaries. Now, look, I know, you know, banks take a lot of heat and all that kind of stuff, but they still have the corner on trust. And oh, it's funny when I was interviewing Brett about uh, the rise of techno-socialism, I said, where's this trust going to come from? And he mm. said, it comes from the algorithm. <laughs> and aye, aye, aye. and aye. that's the technology <laughs> optimist view. And the technology realist view says, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, not all. yet. I'm, you know. But but here's the other thing too is there's a a common term and, and I've never been fond of it but I guess I'm going to use it here that people when talking especially the uh, the folks who are critical of AI like to say that algorithms have parents this is why they claim Ooh. there's so much bias and so if an algorithm has a parent then that has to be the trusted there has to be some mechanism of, of trust and it isn't the algorithm if algorithms have parents. And quite, you know, this is a little bit out of scope of this, but quite frankly, I'll tell you, if if Facebook or Meta or whatever they want to call it is the parent of the algorithm, I don't trust it. Right. You know, so right. and I think there's going to be a lot of people out there who would agree with me on that. And just a lot of people who will be looking and will be educated enough on this to say, wait a second, I'm not trusting an algorithm unless I trust the parent of that algorithm. And... Uh, that's why I'm somewhat, you know, pessimistic or skeptical that this whole DeFi thing is is going to move as fast as people think it is. So, so, so speaking of trust, like, do you think regulation is a good thing for cryptocurrency? Yes, absolutely. And and I actually tell you, I think there's a lot of folks in the industry who agree with that because they get it that if there's regulation, really? there's a, there's the, a trust aspect. Now, part of the challenge and issue that they have, and I actually agree with them, is that when it comes to financial services in the U.S., we have the most convoluted regulatory system you can possibly imagine. You could not design this from scratch and end up this way. 
with state regulators and and OCCs and FDICs right. and now the CFPB. And I know you told me to stay away from the acronyms, but I I just violated <laughs> that. You know, so we just have it's not that we're overregulated, it's just we have a poor regulatory system that's not very logical and coordinated. That's what the crypto folks argue is about who should be regulating them and how it should be regulated, not whether or not it should be regulated. So so I think you ask a million dollar question. So who do you think should regulate it? The Fed? Local Uh, states? No, I don't. Thought on that? The the Fed is not the regulatory body. The Fed is a money management, you know, Mm. economy management group. You know, there's the OCC and the FDIC, um, and you throw in there the Consumer Financial Protection Board, the CFPB. Um, I'm not sure who it is, but I'm pretty sure it isn't the CFPB because that has simply become a you know political hack. Um, you know, from day one, the creation of mm. Elizabeth Warren, and you know, then Trump used it for his, and now it's back to you know being an, being a right. left wing activist organization. So. Um, I'm not sure who it is. I just can tell you who I think it, I know who it shouldn't be. <laughs> That's all that I ask. So, you know, we've talked a lot uh, about concepts. Uh, and I always feel like, especially in this case, there's something I'm not asking that I'm going to miss. So so what big question am I, am I not asking about crypto that you think our listeners would want answered? And it's, it's an unfair question in a way, but, you know, I, I, I know I've missed something. <laughs> yeah, well, the question that everybody wants to know is, is uh, the price of Bitcoin going to go up or down? <laughs> um, you know, is 50, 60,000 the, uh, the ceiling? Are we going heading towards 100,000 and 500,000? Are we heading back down to 5,000? And um, I hate to hate to tell you this, but my answer is I haven't the slightest clue. I, I don't know. Can't read the tea leaves. I'm with you on that. Um, what is one thing you want our listeners to remember from this discussion? Uh, there are always pluses and minuses. There's always a downside. There's always a plus side. If you're a real optimist about this, please get realistic about the downside. And if you're really pessimistic about it, understand that this is a movement. It's not going away. Uh, and there are a lot of benefits to it and that the, the downsides can be managed. Spoken like a true realist. So my favorite question, uh, my last question, what do you love about your job? Uh, almost everything. I have a great wow. job in that I, I get to do what I want, uh, and, you know, research the topics I want. I convince my clients to commission me to write the research that I want to write. Uh, and I can all do it. I've been doing it for 10 years at, at my desk at home, which is great. I don't have to commute. Um, and I can do it uh, and I work with a bunch of people who are super smart. Um, I'm super lucky guy, Barry. This is great. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, you know, sadly, uh, this is not just lip service. You know, I, we're, we're almost out of time, Ron. I, I want to say it's been great, great having you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, I think for our listeners, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did or even didn't enjoy the podcast, you have ideas on how to make us better, you know, visit our, our feed on iTunes to rate, review, or subscribe, 
Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. We want your feedback. And that's it for us on another episode of A Big Rethink. Until next time, I'm Barry Ross. Barry Ross.